0: All. Ladies and gentlemen, it's that time of the week again for the podcast known as Dirtbags. I'm your host, Josh Curran. I'm here with my good friend and
1: co-host, Danny Curran. How are we going today, mate? Wow, I got friend this morning. Wow, I really like I, that. I've friend-zoned you already, mate. Yeah, <laughs> Anyway, can't, uh, can't ditch blood, mate. That's what it is. But the most exciting bit, Josh, is we're actually here with a great mate, Toby Price, now, he is a multi-time Fink champion on the motorbikes. He's a Fink overall in trophy trucks. He's a multi-time AORC champion and uh, Australia's first and only Dakar champ. Tobes, how is it going?
2: Hey, boys. Yeah, all's going well. So it's uh, busy times in the workshop and um, getting all organized for Fink 2022. So it's, um, yeah, busy, but we're we're enjoying it.
1: Awesome, mate. So for our listeners, we are recording this a little bit out, and uh, it, you're going to be listening to it on the Thursday right before Fink, but Toby is back in uh, Australia. You've been back for a little while now, and and you're in the shed. You're literally in the, the workshop there at your uh, in down in Brizzy. Yeah,
2: yeah. So we're based down here uh, close by Brisbane, and um, yeah, I just got back from a trip uh, overseas uh, from the States. So um, we did some testing over there on the motorcycle, and um, yeah, basically planned for Dakar 2023 so it's um yeah full steam ahead back in the workshop here and um close by Brisbane and uh getting this truck all organized and ready to go so it's uh on the trailer and ready to head to uh, a chassis dyno and um again there the big big load up and pack up and get ready for the road trip out so it's yeah it's getting exciting now so it's coming around very quickly
1: Mate, that has to be a good feeling because we actually talked about it on our podcast earlier on, on episode two. We we're talking about that the the Dugan's motor was on their way back and they were going to rebuild it. Ray Ray over there, he's a special man. He obviously got it sorted for you and uh, and she's back in the truck. So that that was a quick turnaround. Does that include air freight? Is that how you get a motor over to America?
2: Yeah, that's uh, how we get one back to America and um, everything. So yeah, it has been a little bit of a long process. So yeah, um, uh, we actually pulled the engine out after Fink uh, 2021 um, and yeah, sent it back to, back to Ray. And um, yeah, unfortunately there was uh, really no uh, availability of heads and stuff um, on the shelves. So we uh, had to wait a little while for that. And um, yeah, we missed out our cutoff date for uh, shipping it back on the boat, but um, yeah, we air freighted it back and uh, got it here to the workshop and, out of the crate and uh, we've literally just got the engine back in the truck probably, yeah, two days ago and, um, yeah, just doing all final checks, just making sure there's no leaks and um, going through all those little things and, uh, yeah, like we're just organised now to have uh, James, Lynn, um, Ray, or Dugans, uh, Ray Ray and and I think Kyle also from Ray Ray and, uh, yeah, get them on a a live link um, to basically tap into the truck Uh, while they're sitting on the other side of the world. And um, they'll tune it from over in the States for us and um, make sure we're all race ready and uh, go from there. So fingers crossed, uh, Wednesday all goes to plan and um, everything should be good.
1: Brilliant, mate. Well, that's interesting because um, you're talking about new heads there. So uh, we obviously don't want to, I don't know whether it's a secret or not. I'm sure it's not a secret, but can you give us a little bit of a breakdown? Do people know how close you were? Like you, you had some pretty serious failures on the way home and again, that's just related to, we've been talking about this for a few weeks now. It is amazing. Toby, if you had have told me back in 2000 that these motors would be pulling 800 horsepower and revving to 8,000 and running thinking back, like that's, that's true. That's drag car 10 second territory back in the just a few years ago. Like they are building amazing motors. So, so let's prefix this with. Ray Dugans and Dugans as a whole, they build an amazing motor that can hold up to abuse from Toby price and, and win the Fink desert race in 21. But that said, it was that close to a terminal failure. Like really you were lucky to drive it onto the trailer. Weren't you?
2: Yeah, hundred percent last year. Um, even though it was all a brand new truck. And um, uh, like I say, we've, we've had a lot of failures in the last three, three, four attempts. So, um, yeah, I, I bit the bullet and, um, I, I sold the old truck, um, uh, which is the geyser that I had. And then, um, yeah, I built a new truck with, with Tisco. So, uh, we basically, we were building that truck to be ready for the 2020, um, think race and, um, with all the pandemic kicking off and everything going wrong. Um, yeah, I basically ended up leaving the truck sit over there in the States for, uh, another 12 months because, um, What was happening was there was a shortage of heads and everything and um yeah not too many people know that actually when we put that first engine together um there was no heads available at that time so they basically had the block and everything sitting there all pistons everything just waiting the heads to to go on and um unfortunately my new heads that i ordered for the new engine didn't um didn't come through and we're at our cutoff date so we had a second-hand set of heads that were on the shelf that um, had had done a bit of racing and a bit of life, and um, that was my only option to basically get the engine built and ready for 2020. And then um, when that all got cancelled, I left the truck, I cancelled all the shipping and everything, and then uh, I left the truck there to basically have the engine pulled back out and then put the brand new heads on that i had ordered for 2020, and um, they still hadn't come through, so... The truck sat there for so long. Um, basically, we went past the cutoff date again, so I just had to basically throw it in a container and get it here to Australia, and um, that was my only option to ever have the actual wheels turning under its own power. So we we got it here and um, ready for twenty one, and um, yeah, everything went real extremely well on the way down to Fink, and then uh, yeah, on the way home, um, about hundred, probably about one hundred and five kilometers from the finish, we started having some water temperature issues and, um, we kind of thought it might've been a bit of a faulty sensor, but then, yeah, you could feel the truck starting to die off a little bit and having some dramas. And, um, Josh Housel, uh, basically he was two and a half minutes behind me on day one. So I had a little bit of leeway and a bit of playing room that I could just kind of baby the truck for as long as I could. And, um, and then, yeah, unfortunately, uh, yeah, Josh was on a move and moving pretty damn quick and, uh, he caught me a lot earlier than I thought and we we're about probably 60, 70 Ks. I was hoping I'd get to about 30 looking after the truck. And then, um, I was going through to the finish no matter what, whether it was, uh, yep. it was either going to sit on the side of the track again, or I was, um, going to sit at the finish line. So, um, I looked in the mirrors and then saw Josh, yeah, basically at that 60 K mark. And I was like, this is not, the not the re- recipe that I wanted okay. right now. And, um, yeah, but basically put the foot back into the floor and, uh, and, yeah, praying to the gods, really, just hoping for the best. And, um, yeah, luckily enough, it all came through and all um, went to plan and, and it uh, crossed the finish line in first. But uh, then I I got home um, from Fink last year and uh, I literally pulled the engine straight away and put it into a crate, shipped it over to Ray, um, getting ready to, yeah, put some new heads or check out what was wrong. And we actually, yeah, cracked the head inside the exhaust valve, Um so basically it was just spitting water straight in the exhaust and straight out the back of the exhaust so luckily it wasn't really going into the um top of the piston or anything like that so that was a bit of a lifesaver there for us but um still done some damage and um yeah we literally only just got those heads that i ordered back in 2020 uh yeah basically about probably two months ago so it was um put all brand new uh, heads on it, rebuilt the engine, um, air freighted the engine back. And then literally I only got it probably three weeks ago. So it's unfortunate why it's been sitting so long. And, um, I haven't been at any other races. So I, I, I really want to go and race at some other events, but, uh, I just don't have very much luck with engines at the moment. So it's, um, yeah, the way it is.
1: Yeah, mate, that's amazing. Yeah. Cause it is, that's crazy that two years it's taking it like that, that stinking flu is really caninous, isn't it? It's changed the way that we operate, like, you know, stuff that we used to get in days and now it's, it is, it's very, very scarce and that's a very interesting. But, mate, I don't know what to do here, to be honest with you. I wanted to go and talk to you about some history. I'm loving talking about the truck. I want to get back to that because there's a couple of questions I've got for you about trucks because you've driven quite a few of these states' trucks too. Interested in your opinion on those. But let's get back for, again, are primarily, uh, we're, we're, you know, into the cars and end of the race cars and the four wheel drives and the dirt lifestyle. So a lot of our guys might know, know your history with the motorcycles. Um, so I was very interested because I, again, I, I guess I'm leading you here, Toby. I want to hear about how, cause you're a motocross guy, something happened and then, you know, you've ended up in desert racing and not just you've dominated desert racing from then on. So how does a, how does a young bloke out of, you know, New South country, New South Wales, that's riding a bit of motocross. I know you're very professional at your motocross, but you know, you made that decision and the changeover.
2: Yeah. So like, um, yeah, not too many people know the story a bit. I, um, I, I grew up on a big property way out, uh, west of Sydney, about eight hours directly west of Sydney and, um, had 43,000 acres of land to play on. And, um, yeah, being out there, I I wasn't into horses, mustering the sheep and cattle. It was uh, all done on motorcycles. So, um, I learned to ride a motorcycle about, yeah, two and a half and, um, and yeah, riding around the farm and everything. So didn't have too much to hit out that way. It was uh, pretty bare ground and everything. And, um, yeah, so I think then I, I went to my first race when I was about four years old um, at Condoblin and, um, yeah, ended up winning there and then it just started to snowball, really. We went to another more national-style event and uh, won that event. And, um, yeah, then basically just some people started to help get us around and go to all these other races, so it was good, always good family time and that, travelling uh, traveling Australia, and so it went all through the grades from, like, yeah, 50cc um, up into 60cc at that time, then it was the 80s, uh, then I went 125, but, um, yeah, won a, a couple of Australian championships uh, on 60s, won a couple on uh, 80s, uh, won a couple on a 125, um, also won a 250F championship was, was last year in juniors, Back in 2003. So, um, yeah, after that, basically, I um, was doing extremely well. Um, I started out doing some circuit racing, like dirt tracks. So I was always wanting to go like MotoGP-style um, racing and everything. But uh, as everyone kind of knows, they see me, um, I'm quite tall and quite big and heavy. And um, that was not going to be a, a route that I could take. Um, I was a little bit overweight for the uh, the Murawaki 80s that they had back uh, all them years ago to get yourself uh, around a road circuit. And, um, so yeah, I went motocross and, uh, everything started going well there. And from there, I, uh, I finished my last year in, uh, juniors when I was 15, just as I turned 16, I, I signed my first factory contract with Kawasaki at that time and, um, went into the motocross and supercross and I'd never done supercross stuff before. And, um, I basically, Lined up inside a Sydney Superdome from um, our very first event, so it's hard to even fit a tennis court in that arena, and um, quite tight. And uh, yeah, I, I found myself coming up short in a few triples and um, over jumping <laughs> a few things, and yeah, I uh, ended up getting carted out of that one uh, in a hospital, uh, into a hospital, out of the out of the meat wagon, and um, yeah, got landed on in that one. So it was a uh, bit of a bit of a strange one, and uh, I was trying to get my head wrapped around that Supercross stuff, and. Then basically, yeah, I, I started just getting a lot of injuries and stuff, so um that was what kind of yeah slowed the progression down a little bit in the motocross supercross side of things, and um yeah ended up breaking femurs and um broke some wrists, broke ribs, uh, knocked myself out numerous times, and um I basically went through around till two thousand sixteen and then uh, two thousand six, and then I took two thousand seven off because um the actual rod that was in my femur. At that time in my left leg was um I ended up crashing and i bent the rod and snapped a couple of screws that were in place and um wow. my leg just ached and was painful so i went in for surgery and got it pulled out and then i was going to go back and start racing in uh 2008 and uh i did went back um, into motocross and, and the supercross and um, I think I finished ninth in the championship in motocross um, and I missed one round because it was in Tasmania and I couldn't afford to do it. So I was uh, at that time working a, a full-time job and um, trying to race motorcycles as well. And um, yeah, it did fairly well, but just didn't kind of come through. And then um, Kawasaki at the end of that 2008 season said to me, um, they have a, a spot available to try and jump on the uh, enduro team and um at first I shrugged it off and said, no, nah, I'm not doing that. That's not, that's not for me. I'm not even, I don't even know nothing about the sport. So no, nah, nah, I'm, I'm going full motocross." And they said, well, we can't really support it too much. And um, it's going to be basically all based on you again. And yeah, working flat out and then to try and be, compete and be competitive against all the factory guys. It's, it's a hard task to kind of do. So I gave it a couple of days and then I rang back and just said, yeah, sweet. Actually I'll, I'll take the enduro ride. I'll, I'll go. And my mindset was I'll just go on there and, flog them all and beat them and i'll make a bit of coin and um i'll save all my pennies up and just try and get ready for uh going back to race motocross and um i'll have a bit of yeah a bit of coin in the bank then and um i actually ended up and then that was 2009 i ended up winning the australian off-road championship and uh yeah blew blew my mind a little bit um and a lot of people at that time uh, stefan merriman had come back from europe and um yeah, basically then KTM spoke to me about staying full-time in enduro and then starting to do desert racing. And, yeah, desert racing was something that kind of interested me. So that's how that all kind of kicked off in 2010 for us.
1: Oh, amazing. So just so I understand that time frame, so you're riding – because it was a KX450. Were you in the 450 class or riding a 250?
2: Yeah, so I was on a KX450. Um, so that in uh, enduro terms is the E2 class. So E1 is your yeah, 250Fs, and then E3 is like big bore. So at that time, I think it was like 500s, 510s, and um, yeah, all like the Hoosabergs and stuff like that at that time. So yeah, I was in the E2 class in a um, KX450, which is bas- basically a motocross model, um, racing around through the bush and uh, trying to yeah get get around the in the championship classes.
1: Yeah, brilliant. And then... So as part of that, so you went to the KDM team and then as part of the KDM team, they took you to Fink and hadar and these desert races because, um, a very famous man called Ben Grabham was on the team at that time.
2: Yeah, that's right. So, um, uh, end of 2009, I signed my contract with KDM and, um, uh, Ben Grabham was on the team at that time. And, uh, yeah, he was dominating in the, um, desert scene at that, at that time out at, uh, Fink and, and Hadar and everything. So, I basically had, yeah, the best coach and um, yeah. uh, right-hand man basically right at my, my uh, fingertips to uh, learn off and, and get my head wrapped around all this desert-style racing. But, yeah, like um I think it shocked a few people how quick I took to it, but yeah. I don't think they knew that story of me being out on the property in the farm where it was basically 30, 40 kilometres of getting from one gate to the next in one paddock and, all you did was just, yeah, get the thing on the throttle stopper and um, try and get to the other side as quick as you could to the gate. So it was, uh, yeah, it, it came around um, quite quite quickly for us. And, um, yeah, like I said, Grabbo was there and had a good coach and setting the bike and everything up. And, uh, yeah, that 2010 season, then I was still doing the off-road championship and I was doing um, uh, the Enduro Cross championship uh, and also all the desert races and everything as well. So it was... A busy schedule, busy year, but uh, I think we ended up winning all the championships in 2010 and um, had a pretty dominant year. So it was, uh, yeah, pretty good time.
0: Mm. So one of the uh, initial things that obviously drew you to off-road race or off-road racing of a motorcycle was the high speed and everything like that. That was the the attraction for you, just getting to put it on the stop and, uh, and just go as fast as you can flat out through the bush because, I mean, that is... I mean, I've watched some of your Instagram clips and stuff like that, and it scares the crap out of me just watching it on my mobile phone. So like, I mean, the, the speeds are absolutely crazy just just for people at home. If you if you don't know or you, you've never seen Toby Price, like check out YouTube and, and watch some of these things. And one of the questions I, I want to know, and, and it's probably a little rude of me asking this, but probably in 2010, 11 and 12, I, I think we had a group chat going with a couple of mates from Fink. And the question that dominated it leading up to Fink was, is it going to be Toby or is it going to be Grabo? Like, who do you, who, like, you know, it's, it's like asking Mike Tyson, you know, it, could he beat Muhammad Ali? But do you reckon if you boys got your bikes to the end because it, it seemed like there was always a, a DNF with a, with a bike failure? who who do you reckon would have had it cuz oh, oh <laughs> what
1: oh yeah no. who would have put so it listen <laughs> he's either put you in a position where you've either got a humble brag or find or to give up for drama no, so you don't have to say it, but okay so then, no we loved it is what he's saying well, yeah
0: is, those those years of, of you and Ben racing together at Fink was just it was we we loved it it was it was fantastic so yeah yeah no. we'll
2: even to, oh 100% it
1: was um that was the best time of like
2: that 2010, 11, 12 period was like probably the most fun I, I've really had It think because, um, yeah, it was never going to be an easy challenge. And, uh, mm. I don't know. Like, like I say, I, I, the first year in 2010 challenging with Grabo, but, um, I'd qualified third. And so that put me on the second row of that first lot of grid. So Grabo was in the front row. I'd actually made up a minute on Grabo and caught up to him, um, down through Fink. But then, uh, yeah, I think that was the year he um he no nah, what he I think he crashed and then had that um broken thumb and then I think when he got to the end he was about probably five ks or short or something and the bike expired. So mm. um god oh, it, it would have been a tough one. I for sure as hell, no, would not you have, don't been have to for day two to go home because uh, <laughs> I knew if, if grabo was behind me, it would have been the hunt would have been on. So it's um, mm. it was definitely a, a, bull, a rare, different playing field. Yeah. Yes,
1: well, the other one you talk about that on the throttle stop. Hey, am I on the right track? I've heard a pit story. You know, it's one of these campfire stories about Roger DeCosta looking at your data on your motorbike engines and basically going, "No, it's not possible." Looking at the data, is it this? you're not your head. This is a true story, isn't it? Can you, can you tell us? Yeah, that's um,
2: yeah, basically, like with, with the Fink race, there's no other race in the world like it. Like, you, you go to Baja events and it's an average speed of about 50, 55 mile an hour. So, it's um, yeah, for Fink, we're, we're averaging speeds of probably 75, 80 mile an hour. So, it's um, that's that's what talking in American yeah. terms. So, when they were looking at data and looking over things, it was just like these engines are not built for this type of stuff and they shouldn't be lasting and which at that point in time, in that period, 2010 to 13, yeah, we, we were kind of struggling to hold these engines together and everyone was rebuilding engines down the other end. And um, so after day one, we, we'd basically nearly expire an engine about 500 k. So it was, uh, yeah, you'd only get one day out of an engine. So it was um, definitely interesting. And the guys in Europe then started to see the data and everything as well. And um, then everyone started kind of working together a bit to uh, get these things a bit more reliable and actually get down to thinking back. And then before we knew it, we, we had a lot of good parts and um, everything kind of came together and we were getting 30, 40 hours out of the engine. So it was uh, definitely a big step in the right direction. And um, I, I think for KDM, I think, too, they, they liked it a little bit more. They weren't rebuilding five, two or three engines every night to try and um, get ready for a return trip home or yep. Yep. Getting ready to go practicing because we were doing like eight to ten thousand kilometres of practice up and down that track um, to get ready for the race. So it was uh, a lot of lot of lot of time on the bike and a lot of work. That's for sure
1: yeah it was crazy back in the day wasn't it like you had the full kdm truck which I, again you still do but uh, you know it was nothing for at four o'clock in the morning one of those 250s or a 450 or a 510 to, or whatever 505s whatever they are to be running down the, the dirt road beside the campsites to bed in the piston and ring they, they were literally a fresh motor those yeah. guys because so if you listen along at home you can't change your motors at think the rule is that it's got to have the same essentially casing number but yep. if you can rebuild it in that time frame you're good to go so you guys had the the factory support there where you're going through and and just so we're clear so were the tw- uh the honda boys they were doing the same thing i remember that uh steve hengerfeld come over remember yes. josh yes. and he had that little 250 and i don't know it was just on the bot from start to finish i think he had a switch and um same deal like just a little 250 but I remember them running it up and down the pit road down at the Fink End to try to get it bedded in and read it for the race. So this was common practice back in that era of time because we were pushing them so hard. So it's, it's an amazing story, Tobes.
2: Yeah, for sure. That's it. Like it, we were getting up at um, like, yeah, seven, eight o'clock in the morning and that's pretty much the time of the trucks and everything leaving. And um, yeah, basically just running up and down the service road a little bit just to try and bed in the engines and wear the bearings in a little bit. So they weren't basically just going from, uh, from idle to full on stop for the whole time. They don't like that type of thing. So it, it's got um,
1: two hours of punishment.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's got two hours of punishment coming. So yeah, it's, um, yeah. yeah, just trying to be a little bit nice to and look after them <laughs> and everything. So it's, yeah. uh, yeah, it's been good. Like uh, to have even guys from Baja and stuff come over. And, um, I remember Col- Colton Udahol came over one year there and, um, yeah, I, I remember seeing on one of the Fink videos that, uh, yeah, he crossed the finish line, and I'd gone through in the morning and stuff, and he came across the line, which he's won numerous uh, Baja 1000s and yep. quite a strong rider and, and knows the ground and terrain in, in, in Mexico. And, uh, yeah, the the interview was like, oh, I think the first thing he asked was like, oh, how far am I behind Toby? And I think they said it was like 18 minutes or something. And <laughs>
1: yep, um, yep, yep, yep. The utter look at disgust
2: on his face. face deflate and then yeah. didn't even say a word and then just starts the bike and rides away. So yeah. it's, um, yeah. those it, poor water girls things over here. So it's different. World yeah. for
0: sure. Yeah. Well, we were talking about it on, on a previous podcast where we said uh, the different styles of racing from Australia to America, where think has now become just a flat out sprint race. And if you're, if you're not, it doesn't matter whether you're the cars, the bikes, anything, if yeah. you're not pushing it at a hundred percent, the whole way through, and you've got to run that risk of, blowing up a motor or, or having a fall or or having a rollover or something like that, because yeah, as we said that there'll be 20 cars, there were 20 bikes that'll do it and 19 will blow up and 19 will break, but, but one will get through it. And if you want to be on the top step, that's what you got to do. Cause the other one I remember is the, as the Instagram clips got longer and longer, like, cause videos used to be 15 seconds. And I think you put a video out of it through the whoops, but it was just flat on the limit of the whole way. And I think someone's someone, and then when the videos came out, they went to a minute long and they said, Oh, I haven't, I seen you I haven't put a video out and, and I loved it. I think about 15 minutes later, there was like a a, a video up on Instagram of that 500 just on the stopper the whole way through.
2: Yeah, that's it. it. It did not get a fresh bit of uh, a back off bit of like fresh bit of air from one minute. So it's uh, yeah, yeah. It, like I say, there's not too many motorcycles that uh, are really built for that type of stuff uh, in the world really. So it's, um, normally half the time they get a little bit of a, a little bit of a break and um, get time to shut down a little bit and, uh, and catch back up. But uh, yeah, Fink's just one of them races that just, um, yeah, you don't don't give any engine a break out there. So it's uh, very hard on equipment. So it's um, definitely a test and uh, yeah, a credit to most of all these engine builders and um, all these bike and car manufacturers. It's uh, Mm. pretty, pretty crazy and pretty intense.
1: Absolutely. Hey mate, we'll deviate a little bit because we'll come back to think. Obviously, we love that race, and we're so close to it now. It's definitely the uh, the the chat amongst our group that's for sure. We're we're very excited about it. But let's go down the path of how you ended up at Dakar. Because is it my understanding is that it all started really with going over and doing a bit of riding. You actually raced the San Felipe two fifty, didn't you? And doing a bit of air scramble stuff and all this sort of thing. You're actually on the uh, was it the KDM? I know they but it's the C team with, with Mike Brown. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. So, well, actually it was the the B team, um, with the, the KDM crew, uh, in the States. So in, uh, in that period in 2012, um, I went over as a spare rider for, uh, the Baja 1000 team. So I got to do all pre-running. So they actually, um, they gave me just a little handheld Garmin, um, they, 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 sent one guy with me and just said, basically he'll, he'll be a chase chase guy. We just need you to know the whole track just so that if somebody has an accident or crashes in the race, you'll be able to jump on the bike, find your way through, just get the bike to the next, um, next team, next pit area to, um, yeah, put the other rider on the bike. And, uh, that was basically my, my opening, um, in to try and get ready for some Baja races. And, uh, yeah, I I basically followed the whole course, found the whole way, went, that was that year, it was um, from Ensenada down to La Paz, so it's, uh, I think it was like 11, 1200 miles um, of riding, so I I spread that out over five days of riding, I think it was, and just done a couple of sections twice, and just checking over everything, and um, yeah, they basically just didn't give me too much information, just said, here's a GPS, and um, here's the bike, and here's a drum of fuel, and yeah, good luck and just see if you can get down to the La Paz end. And um, I, yeah, I did that and uh, they were yeah, impressed with that. So I think they kind of knew then my skill a little bit from reading the Garmin GPS and um, navigating my way through a place I'd never been to ever in my life before. Um, I think that's where the, the Dakar talk kind of started a little bit. And at that point, Kurt Caselli was um, starting to do some riding in Dakar and um, testing with the rally team and everything. And Uh, that year all went fairly well. I think we ended up finishing second um, to the Honda guys. I think Colton was part of that Honda crew and team and um, yeah, we were going to come back full force in 2013. So I'd signed up with uh, the B team with Mike Brown. And then at that time was Kurt Gaselli and Ivan Ramirez on the A team. And uh, I went over and done the first race, which was the San Felipe 250 and, um, done all my pre-running, done all the testing and stuff and everything was in really good shape and um we went into the event and uh I think me and Mike Brown started third or fourth we qualified third or fourth and um and then by the time Brownie had gone through he'd actually um he'd gone through like hit like a bit of a cactus and drove like a big thorn up through the knuckle of of his hand so he was having troubles trying to hang on and we fallen back I think to about seventh or eighth place and uh, we were about 20 minutes off the overall lead. Um, so then I, I climbed the bike and I got us back into fourth and I think we we're only about eight nine minutes off the lead so I'd pulled in like 11 11 minutes in my section I think so it was uh, about 120 miles I had for my section. And um, yeah, everyone was really stoked and, and happy and impressed with that. So I'd came home, I'd done some uh, off-road championship rounds, and was doing what I was normally doing back here. And um, and then I I flew over uh, probably three weeks earlier for the Baja 500 race. And um, I the weekend before we were actually going to head down to uh, start pre-running and testing for Baja 500. I. Um, went and decided to go and do one of the National Hare and Hound races and that was hopefully going to be the championship I'd look to race and compete in in 2014 as a full-time rider in in the US and um Kirk Casselli was racing it at that time as well so I thought why not I'll just go there and yeah try and take in as much experience as I could and um yeah just uh, unfortunate that in 2013 I um at that race at the Hare and Hound I crashed and that's when I broke my neck uh, in three places oh, yeah. and was laying in a hospital bed um yeah not yeah, contemplating my life of what was going to happen for me and um if motorcycles ever are going to be possible again and um i basically laid in a hospital bed there for a a week and um they weren't going to do nothing the insurance company that i was with they pulled the pin on me and um basically went hightailing and running because it was going to be about a half a million us dollar uh surgery to fix all my necks so they hightailed it and then, um, yeah, the, the scramble then started to try and get myself back home to Australia and get myself uh, all fixed up. So I got kicked out of the hospital basically, um, went and stayed in a hotel for two nights and waited for a oh. flight uh, with Qantas. And um, I flew from L.A. back to uh, Brisbane um, in a full big halo system and everything. They'd screwed in on my head to keep myself all uh, straight and on the narrow and uh, – Landed in Brisbane on ANZAC morning, um, 2013, and then I caught a cab from the airport across to the um, the hospital, and then uh, yeah, went under surgery about six hours later, and had all the uh, eight screws and three rods put in my neck. So it's um, my head screwed on, literally now, so I can uh, <laughs> have a bit of fun and joke around with that one, and yeah, cruise around from there.
1: Brilliant. So that was through KTM, is that right, Toby? Or it was someone that, like, how did you get on to knowing to go to Brisbane for a doctor? Uh,
2: that was a little bit through KTM. So um, actually, it was that 2012 period, that's when actually Grabo broke his back as well. So Grabo had seen a doctor, um, Paul Lacena in Brisbane Private Hospital up here, and uh, he fixed Grabo up, all perfectly straight and narrow and, and sorted and got him back on a motorcycle. So I was like, well, that's going to be my best option I can kind of take. So that information, again, came from Grabo and, um, yeah, kind of went from there.
1: Brilliant, mate. So then I don't know where to go here because we're leading towards Dakar, but I'm actually interested now that you've mentioned Baja and talking about Mexico, Cause you've done some amazing racing in four wheels in Mexico. Is there any amazing, I mean, I'm sure you can tell Mexico stories. Most people can tell Mexico stories <laughs> for days, but like you ended up racing with none other than Jesse Jones, who is one of the wildest men known to live. He's a, he's a beast of a man. And, um, like tell us, there's gotta be some crazy stories about pre-running and racing with Jesse and jesse always had amazing equipment still does like you know they're always at the cutting edge you know he was one of the very first with a four-wheel drive truck out there floating around at that level like with the masons and that and you know he always had beautiful guys a truck so i'm sure that was an amazing experience in itself
2: yeah 100 percent um jesse is an absolute legend um yeah you have so much fun with that guy but yeah he's a wild man that's for sure so uh but he's always had really nice equipment. He's always um yeah been at the front running with uh like yeah I, I guess in his younger days um probably from that two thousand five period onwards he was always running at the front. He'd won um won a score championship I think um in a in a guys' truck and everything. So so that's a, the the story is how I've kind of met Jesse was um when I went back over to the States, I went and did a Red Bull Day in the Dirt event and um, I met Bryce Menzies. Um, he was at the event, just hadn't have his uh, profile on display and everything. And um, I actually started doing quite well at the, the Red Bull Day in the Dirt and um, winning a few categories and um, Red Bull Australia had kind of hooked me up with Red Bull US to just kind of look after me and just make sure I was all good. Cause I was over there on my own and just, kind of, yeah, backpacking it really and, um, floating around with, um, yeah, a small van and just one dirt bike and a fuel drum and a toolbox and, um, I'd set up and go on Glen Helen and everything and just go and have some fun. So that race I met Bryce Menzies and, um, from there that was like when I went back over to, uh, the San Felipe race, um, I went over to one of the hotels that Bryce was staying at and um, started to, yeah, just wanted to go and catch up and say good day. And um, they were sitting all in like a motorhome campus. So at that time it was like Bryce Menzies was inside, Jesse Jones, um, uh, the Warwick uh, brothers from Tisco, um, Mark McMillan was in there. Um, I think Steve Menzies was in there. So I, basically kind of said good day to all the guys there and was hanging out and cruising along and um yeah had a, had a chat with them and everything and then uh as i left yeah one of the guys that was um taking me back out to the to the car and everything he was like ah oh, said you probably wouldn't know he said but all in that van and that uh motorhome there's there's probably quite a lot of money sitting in that motorhome mm. so um mm to me that was like i'm not too stressed i'm not too worried if you've got yeah two dollars in the bank or you've got yeah 50 million sitting in the bank it makes no difference to me so i was like oh yeah that's cool rad sweet as no worries and um i then i went to a a six-day enduro in uh two yeah i think it was 2014 and um and as i finished the sixth day i, I just finished second in the world um and first in e3 class and uh I was like basically I wasn't too far. I think I was in I was in Argentina. So the two weeks later I think the Baja one thousand was on. So I, I messaged Bryce and just said, Hey, is it cool if I come over and um actually help pit for you guys? And at that time Bryce and Jesse were driving together. So he's like, Yeah, sweet, no worries, we'll take care of you. Look, yeah, jump on a plane and come over. And so I flew over and then um basically yeah, all I was doing was going doing the shopping for them and stuff, going by bottles of water and washing the windscreen of their pre runners and washing their cars and hanging out. And um, that's when I kind of got to know Jesse a bit more. And Jesse's like, Oh, what? Like you just finished second in the world and you're coming over here, washing my car. He's like, what the hell's going on? Like that's random. And like not yeah. many half, like close to being a world champion, like people do that type of stuff. Yeah. And I'm like, Oh, I just, I just love racing. And it's, um, in my blood i love doing it and um i said yeah baja is just one place i love to come and it's always a good story to tell from here so i said i was more than happy to just come and help and do whatever we need to do and um so yeah he kind of took a bit of a yeah a liking to that really and didn't really mind that i yeah was there helping out actually it wasn't just sitting back and like kind of thinking "Yeah, nose in the air and um from doing all the racing i was doing on the bike and so then um yeah, that was that basically – that year had finished up. I think the boys had a bit of a rough run with the, the truck. Um, I think one of – they got a few too many flats or something and um, they didn't have the greatest of results, but still a good time. And then I um, – that was like then the following year was that's when I went out and um, done the trophy truck with the bike. And when i done quite well, I'd done the bike and the truck. And uh, I finished first on the bike, second in the um, – trophy truck outright and but first in class and then um i think bryce and jesse weren't driving together that year and um rick geyser basically said shit like jesse if you're looking for someone to drive toby did quite well at fink so maybe you should look at just yeah throwing him in in the in the truck with you and um next thing yeah jesse rings me and he goes oh he said you want to come back over for the Baja 1000 i said yeah sweet mate i'll come over and wash cars and do whatever i need to do for you and i'll help you out no problem i'll i'll change tires whatever you want and he goes no no you're you're going to come over and drive for me so he, you'll be the spare driver and i was kind of a bit shocked and didn't know what to say i was like i've only raced a trophy truck once in my <laughs> life and now you just take me into the biggest race of the off-road world and uh um, yep. you're giving me that chance so it was uh basically and from there, basically the connection just kicked off and we've got along ever since and still keep in touch with Jesse now. So he's a, an unreal person. Love, uh, love being around him and he's always a good time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolute beast. No, that's so cool, mate. And it's so uh, amazing that that's the way that you got the opportunity. I hadn't heard that story. And you know, like again, sometimes boots on ground and, and just doing those jobs and it, it can lead to amazing opportunities. You know what I mean? Like that seems to be Probably a lot of people know of Toby Price, the Dakar champ, and they've – I don't want to call them getting on board late, but, you know, they don't realize that there's a lot because that even goes into – I've talked to you about, you know, there's probably a lot of people that think that you've got a full Red Bull program and blah, 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 and your truck just turns up, you know, meticulously polished and ready to go. I see you <laughs> laughing because that's where I'm going. I, I, again, I don't want to want to wreck your illusion, mate. You're a, you're a superstar, but the flip side is you, you physically – bolt your own brakes on you physically you're the guy putting spanners putting motors in cars. obviously the support is amazing from who you've got around you as sponsors and and, and all of that sort of stuff but it's not all uh it's it's not all the show that the movie would see would it? it there's there's a lot of hard work that goes into this racing even when you're at the top of the sport and this is true of even the american guys like sure there is a few guys that are, are pretty lucky in their position, but guys like Harley Lettner and that, like he's still working on the week. He's putting motors in race cars. He's, he's doing testing. He's tuned a turn and you're in the same boat where, you know, you're driving the truck out to think, and I don't know if you are this year, but you, previously you have towed cars out and done bits of, like it's, yeah. Anyway, I, don't, I just wanted to like, you know, encourage almost the people that are out there that, you know, like this, dream of a free ride isn't really i mean it's a great ride but there's a lot of stuff that goes into and you've got to be prepared to be the guy boots on ground washing windscreens because that's how opportunity presents itself
2: yeah a hundred percent that's like a lot of people i get a lot of people message me and say oh geez i wish i had your life like it Mm. seems like it's kind of all been handed to you and um Mm. but yeah behind the scenes not many people see what actually kind of goes on and um there's a lot of work involved in it and like i say Mm. For me to get my chance to race some trucks and and do some Baja One Thousands in uh, some of the best equipment, I started out washing windscreens and changing tires and stuff. So it's um, yeah, it does. Like sometimes it gets a little frustrating. It, yeah, you see people comment and things like that. But it's um, it is a part of the world now of social media and stuff. And it's like, um, I have really great supporters on board with that help out with Fink this year and uh in, in previous years and stuff. But Uh, trust me sometimes i think probably out of the last five i've done um at fink i've probably yeah pulled 20 to 30 grand out of my own pocket to go and do fink and people think that just uh i have uh, free reign and everything is open and yeah there's no budget there's no limit but trust me there is a limit and uh that's why i drive um the transporter and stuff sometimes out uh with dad and tow vehicles out and everything because I just, I can't afford to put other people on to kind of do that stuff. So it's, uh, these are the goals and dreams that I want to chase. And these are the, the the fun things I love doing and you've got to get your hands dirty and, and get there and get it done. So, uh, yeah, I'm in the workshop trying to help, um, do as much as I can, tighten bolts up and putting bash plates and everything on the truck, bolting engines back in. But it's, um, yeah, it's, uh, from, from the social media world, um, people just see the sunshine and rainbows and just think it's uh it's all put together and planned for me and i'm i'm just sitting back relaxing so it's i get up early in the morning and go and do my training for uh racing the motorcycles and then i'm back in the workshop basically building and putting things together and working on things that i like doing and uh then yeah ride or train in the afternoon on the on the motorcycle and stuff like that and then sometimes i'm in the workshop till 8 9 10 o'clock at night and uh yeah basically getting up the next morning to do, repeat and do it all again so it's um yeah it, it is what it is but it's um yeah I, I know the work and effort that puts into it and 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 people that are involved with the sport for sure know that this is not not an easy task and i gi- i give massive big hats off and credit to people that do work 9 to 5 and then come home and sit in the garage and work on the bikes or work on the trucks and buggies and everything like that because Sometimes I don't know how people pull it together because I do have basically a full day to kind of work on my trucks and work on my bikes. And it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time to put all this stuff together, to get in the car and actually go to a race meeting and go and do something you love to do. So it's um, nah, hats off to all the, the privateer guys that do that stuff. It's um, not an easy task.
0: Well, cause it's not even just the, the race car alone. Like I, I see you put a photo up on social the other day, you and JP were uh, yeah. doing all the wheel bearings and everything on your transporter and everything like that. And then um, you were just talking about like, you've got to drive the truck out yourself. Um, have you've just done your truck license as well so that you're able to drive, to, to drive the truck. So, but, but that I'll is, that, that's your few
2: years, mate. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> did you do the crash
0: box? Did you do the, is it? Yeah, I did the crash yeah. box, mate. Worry, Get, crashed or That's for sure. <laughs> <do it. laughs> well, we had that. We sort of not to, we'll just hop on a little bit and, and we'll t- sort of tell a bit of a Toby, t- a Toby price to- coattail story. But we had a similar one where we were driving a truck out to Fink one year and, um, the old boy was going to come with us and then his work plans totally changed. And we had two weeks and like to get a license we had, otherwise our truck wasn't getting out there. So we had to like ring up the transport and well, I literally booked in to do a test without ever driving a truck and then <laughs> found someone that was stupid enough to try and teach me how to drive a truck. And, and that's, but that's what you got to do. Yeah. So, so like you said, it, it, it's not just prepping the truck as well. Like the race truck, it's the transporter, it's the trailer, it's the vehicle that goes out there. Oh, and that's they, the biggest killer. And I don't, don't know labor intensive. I
1: was going to say we're generally fixing lights on trailers before we leave for think like hours before. I don't know. It's it always gets us always. Yeah, you're, yeah. you're
2: downstairs with the trailer. You have got a torch in the mouth trying to. Yeah. Yes. Nine o'clock at night trying you to fix wires and stuff together. Yeah, you know. Definitely. Works and stuff. Don't worry. It's it's chaos yep. and nightmare. Yep. Exactly the yep. same thing here at my yep. shop. So. It, and it, it doesn't matter everywhere. how everyone thinks it's uh like i say it's smooth sailing but um yeah that's it like it, like i say it's um some of the stuff that probably doesn't need to be done but you've just got to check it it, it is a three-day drive out to alice springs yeah. and if you you may you're better off to do it here at the workshop where you've got all the tools you've got all the right equipment and stuff and yeah we we checked all the wheel bearings and we took all the wheels off and checked over everything and they were all perfectly fine but if we didn't do it and didn't check it, we'd yep. probably get out halfway and again get stranded on the side of the road. and Then go, she's we have got the wrong size wheel bearing, and <laughs> yes. while well, ever there's a shop here, we can just go down the road and pick it up and get it Oh, done. there's yeah.
1: tons of parts <laughs> on the Barkley Highway. <laughs> oh, no, tons yeah, of parts.
2: Great. A lot of cars, <laughs> mate. What's that old bush mechanics? Uh, yeah, story? Yeah. Yeah. the boys found carburetors out in the middle of the yeah. bloody. So You'll be sweet. Yeah. So it's, um, love it,
1: love it. Yeah, no, oh. it's,
2: it's good though. So it's it's good to still have my mum and dad a part of it all, and um i probably do uh stress my dad out as we all kind of do and run him to on the limit and um yeah like i say he's only getting older and i'm getting older i can feel it already um so i can only imagine what he feels like and i put him under that much stress but it's uh no it's cool like we just try and take our time and we give ourselves plenty of lead time to get these things done and but, it's, yeah, it's not only servicing the trophy truck itself or the motorcycles, it's um, doing the trailers and making sure you've got all the spare parts in the, in the yep. prime mover. You're making sure you've got all all the race fuels and spare parts for the truck. And you're going through triple checking everything just to try and make this all kind of happen and, and, and go as smoothly as possible. So, But you can put so much prep into it and it can turn to absolute shit and complete nightmare uh, in the blink of an eyelid. So it's, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at this sport or, um, this whole program and everything. It, it doesn't guarantee you nothing in the sport. That's for sure.
1: That's very true. Mate, so you probably covered there because we actually led into, because you said about the trophy truck. Well, I was going to ask you how you got into the four-wheel stuff. I mean, obviously, it's every man's dream to end up with a trophy truck. That's logical. But when you – you, it was the, the Ironman was what truly got you, like, I've got to get – you rented a trophy truck the first time, and then you ended up with a trophy truck, very much the same sort of, like a guy's a trophy truck that you bought out of. It, it was actually an Australian guy that you got out of America, and it ended up here and raced it, and that's a great story as well. But it was the Ironman attempt that really got you the first ride in a tro- – well, in the in the driver's seat of a trophy truck. So talk us through – because that Ironman attempt uh, – now, it had been done previously by Billy. And I'm, yeah. I love Bill. Everyone loves <laughs> Bill. He's an absolute legend. But I suppose you took it to another level with your capabilities on a motorbike. You made it a reality that at some point uh, – I mean, it's very clear that you have the, the ability and the capability to be one and one. And that would be truly insane. That's, that's something where wow, that, you yes. know, to have that skill set, mate, like of good on you. I'm serious. Like that's, that's impressive. Cause normally we've got a great bike rider and a, you know, a very average car, not average, but you know, like an average car, you do both well. So you've got that opportunity. You saw an opportunity, you grabbed it, you were this close. Are we going to revisit it or it's not an option or.
2: No, for sure. It's, it's definitely on the cards. And, um, like, honestly, I, I wanted to try and do it again this year. And, uh, just the way my cards kind of fall a little bit now that um dakar kind of takes main priority and stuff now which is yeah fair enough and it's uh yeah it, it like I say if you crash a motorcycle at thing um it's it, you're not going to come out the other side of it pretty good so it's uh it, it is a tough one to kind of hmm. run that risk um to go out there and and race uh on the two wheels there now that we have to really kind of keep our eyes set on dakar which is in January so even though it's six months later, it's, it's, it's going to be a catastrophic um, crash out there and uh, there's things are going to take a long time to heal. So it's just got to try and be a little, little smart with it. Like I say, I'm, I'm only getting older and um, the body definitely starting to say, yeah, we, we got to look after ourselves a little bit now because that period from 20 to 29, basically, I just, I smashed myself into the ground that many times. And at that point in time, I was, I was willing to die to win a race. And, um, I remember saying that to um, Matthias Walkton one time. It was, yeah, I'll, I'll die winning this race. I don't care. Like, I'm, I'm all for it, and all I want to do is go full gas. And if it's a big one, yeah, so be it. So now it's like, yeah, you start to think, she's. I've got to kind of look after the body a little bit. I've got a long time ahead of me that I've uh, got to enjoy life and um, kind of, yeah, sit back and, and enjoy all these things that I've done. But uh, 2010, like I said, when it was the first time at Fink, was the first time I saw the buggies and, and the trophy trucks. And I'm like, what the hell is this world? Like, this is, this is out of control. Like it's, um, my dad used to race off road back many, many years ago. I think when I was, I was kind of still running around in nappies and stuff at that time. Uh, they had an old international scout. Um, my uncle, um, used to race or used to drive and my dad used to navigate. And, um, it had an old V eight Cleveland or something, mid mount engine in it and everything. And, um, so my dad, used to race off road and but at that age i'd never really clicked onto it and i couldn't drive cars and stuff myself so that's why i went the motorcycle route because i could do it pretty quick so um yeah and then 2010 that's when i first seen them. it was just like this stuff looks badass So how do i get into this and then when i looked at the price tags of them and everything i was like oh i've got no chance like on my budgets (laughs) that i'm running with riding a motorcycle there's and there's no hope in hell of getting in one but each year i went to think just that love for it i guess kind of just grew more and more and more and um things were going in the right direction i was winning some, a lot of races and like i say i was storing a lot of money away trying to save up yep. to cuz the future goal and plan is to buy one and everything and um yeah i think it was that 2015 period i bit the bullet and um rented Uh, brad gallard's truck um at that time he had a twin turbo new style um geyser truck and then he had his old uh, v8 chev based um geyser that he had in the shop so i rented that from him and yeah like i say i was always um billy saw i saw billy do it with the um the ironman class and um like i say it was in a different kind of aspect for him because it was we we would look at it and go, see we could see if it could work and see if somebody has enough energy to actually really do it. And um, But Billy was starting early in the truck and then he qualified, I think, around like mid-pack-ish, which gave him a lot more time to kind of get home um, and get on the bike and race and take off. But my biggest problem to the whole thing was like, I have to be super fast in the truck to get down there as early as possible to then fly back um, and hoping that I was first, second, or third off the line on the motorcycle category, which they take off at 11 o'clock. So I started like crunching numbers and how fast helicopters kind of fly, how fast airplanes fly, and how fast I'd have to be in the truck to then make it at the time and have a cutoff time, whether I was at 190 or three kilometres from the finish line. If I'd went past that certain time, I basically had to just climb out of the truck and jump in the helicopter and fly back and, and get out of there. So it was a lot of, yeah, like a logistic nightmare. And um, it, it's not a very, very easy weekend. Like I think weekend for me is quite busy. And, um, yeah, you see a lot of fans and a lot of people that come out to, to visit and, and say hello and um, and be around and watch me ride the motorcycle and drive trucks and that stuff now. And But it was, yeah, it was so much calculation in it to try and see if it could actually work running at the front of both groups and um, the numbers all stacked up perfect and looked like that they would actually work. So yeah, we, we bit the bullet with, um, with, with the guys and said, let's have a call with it and just see if it's actually possible to do and see if I can actually drive one of these trucks. So Brad, yeah, took me down for a test day. I drove around and it's like, yeah, I could probably work this out. It'll be all good. And let's just go full send and um, see if it make it work. And uh, yeah, that very first attempt, I, went down, I was like third, third overall in the trophy truck. Um, and then I flew home on the plane because it gets me home about 15 minutes quicker than a helicopter. And then um, I basically had about probably 35 minutes spare up my sleeve to um, get myself ready to r- race the motorcycle and um, went down on the bike we were leading on day one, so that was all good, um, in the right right spot and right area. And then uh, day two coming home, about the same thing. I was about probably 80 k's from the finish, and uh, next thing the old truck started to die off, and um, yeah, a bit of a bit of a headache. But we were still foot to the floor and and going to it. Um, I had a navigator Kyle uh, Fitzner in with me that year. Yep. So, yeah, he had his feet up over the dash, over the finish line, down the fink end and everything. So it was a bit of a wild ride for him um, with somebody not knowing what they were doing at the steering wheel really and um, trying to work it out along the way. And, uh, yeah, on the way home, then I, I started to actually catch dust and we were like – but we were running on seven cylinders. We'd actually dropped the valve and it, it just timed it perfect. I got super lucky this year as well. The valve had come down and, like, landed on the top of the piston and it went, like, up in an angle and then just wedged itself back in the hole of the head and then just punched the thing into the head but didn't crack the piston, didn't, like, let the rod go or nothing. So, I, And um, Luke Hendry, which actually he was just here uh, with us helping try to put the engine back in, um, he still got the piston uh, and the head and everything that was – at that time, he was doing the engines for Brad. And, uh, he still got it and he said, I don't know how the thing didn't just to, to be a time bomb and explode and, uh, caught and, and then I, in the dust I caught and passed, um, Bo Robertson, gave him a couple little love taps and, um, cruising <laughs> along and, uh, got into second and that was, yeah, second overall and first in class four with the trophy truck. And then, yeah, days two on the bike, run home, all went extremely well and, um, we won on the bike, so I was about seven minutes short or something, I think of the overall lead, um, in the truck. So it came quite close, but it was, mm. we. that's the worst part is that now that's a fire burning in my stomach that I yeah. know it's possible to do. Yep. And it yep. hurts me that I still haven't been able to have a, have, have a crack at it and try and make it happen. But yep. you got to have a lot of things go right for you because it motorsport racing, there's so many moving parts and just, uh, things can go wrong very, very quickly.
1: Absolutely. Well, that sort of leads us into, so uh, with that, you're talking about the motorbikes and then the car. So would that be an option? So going forward, are you looking into like moving into car racing full time once the motorbike thing is run its course with age? Is that something that's a possibility for for yourself?
2: Yeah, for sure. That's like, um, I think that, that old saying that everyone kind of knows, with age comes a yeah. cage.
0: It's, yeah. a yeah. it's, yeah. a
1: it's a very good one it's
2: a very good one very good one because <laughs> yeah. uh yeah you do drive these trucks and get out the other end and go Whoa, i feel like i could go and run a marathon right now and like the, yeah. they do beat you up a little bit but they do handle extremely well the same as the buggies and got plenty of horsepower and stuff but uh yeah the bike takes a lot of wear and tear on your body and mm. um definitely beats you around and, and beats you up so I just know I'm not going to be able to do that for the rest of my life. I'm going to enjoy riding bikes and still yep. cruise around and have fun on them. But I can't be competitive. And um, and at the top of the field, when you have younger guys, when at, when at 21 years of age, when I was doing it, I was willing to die for a race. So yep. it was um, all young guys have that kind of mentality. And um, yep. yeah, things just don't heal quite as quick now. So for sure, it's definitely a um, a goal and a, a dream to try and compete and race Dakar in the car. And um, do like what Stefan Peter Hansel and them guys have done, like Nani Roma. they've all won Dakar on a bike and they've won Dakars in a car. And um, that would be hopefully the next uh, kind of goal for us. But Stefan Peter Hansel's uh, record, I think, of six on the bike and now seven in the car, I think, oh, is a fair old tour order. Amazing. Yeah, he's he's laid
0: me. the gauntlet down
2: he's laid the gauntlet down hard. So um, yeah, it might be a bit of a hard one to chase, but uh, if I could try and win one more on the bike, I would, I'd I'd be super happy. And um, yeah, I definitely consider that option um, to to switch to four wheels, but I know myself, I'm still competitive on a motorcycle and I know I can still win a Dakar with, without sounding cocky or too crazy with it, but I know I've still got the speed to do it and um, I don't want to hang the helmet up too early and, uh, look back in 20 years time and go she's what if i went one more year in the bike would it maybe have happened so like i say 2019 um that dakar i won with a broken wrist um i would never have thought at all i would have been winning a uh, my second dakar uh with a broken wrist so it was definitely you've got to be in it to win it and that's the yep. thing it's um line up and just uh hope for the best sometimes and and get into it
0: yeah
1: yeah that's interesting
0: yeah, so one question because you were talking about the that desire still burning in the bike. I'm I'm asking all the questions here that ask you to compare something, but uh, the adrenaline rush of the bike versus the the trophy truck. I think is do the, does the bike still get your hairs up on the back of your neck like that? That danger, you're out in the element and stuff like that. And, and like you said, the trucks are cool, the buggies are cool, but there's that there's that real you and the bike against the against the track versus like the truck really doing a lot of the work like i've said before if i could ride a bike like toby price i'd be racing a bike at fink not the buggy like uh i'm just not wired that's that a, way that's I a pretty just, logical statement I, mate. Yeah, yeah i'm just not <laughs> wired that way i don't have the skill but but as a guy that dabbles in riding motorbikes there, there is something about that the, the open air the the rawness of riding a bike that is just well,
1: well here you go josh Again, seeing as this is dropping straight before Fink, I don't know if you will get everyone on side here with the car boys. But Josh, you've openly said, haven't you? You said it's a motorbike race that we're lucky enough to yes. to come along to. Yeah, yeah, 100%. you know, like Fink is a motorbike race, and yeah. and the car guys sort of have to get it through their head that that you know it was built around that, and that's what's so yeah. epic about it. That's what the locals love. The cars are an awesome sideshow. Like they're they're brilliant. People love trophy truck, love buggies, like you said, but. The motorbikes is where it's at like those guys battling that track it's just it, we we run out so we've done this so like where you race the buggy down and then like everyone'll be like celebrating and cheering yep but we're back and we we'll run a down the service road 30ks down in our race suits so we can see you guys hit the 2025k whoops through there like because we're again we are motorbike boys so we we actually rode in 2010. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. The fir- actually, I beat Grabo that year. i was gonna say we beat Grabo that year. That's, <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we do. We do say that quite regularly. But but really, cool. yeah, yeah, hundred yeah. <laughs> percent. Never did it again.
0: But but <laughs> it, it is cool as someone that does enjoy riding bikes to hear you talk about like the, the fact that it's still you know it excites you and it's something that you're still super passionate about. So mm. yeah, just just wanted yeah. to ask about the comparison between you know the bike and the car and and the adrenaline levels that you you get between those two. Uh, vehicles.
2: Yeah. No, hundred percent. Like I, I still love motorcycles through and through and that's like, it is a very, very fine line that I, I am walking at the moment because um, people do see that, yeah, I am doing four wheel stuff and um, thinking that, yeah, that's like the direction straight away already that I want to go. But I, I still know I'm competitive on a bike and yeah. I know what I'm doing on a bike and yep. uh, there, there is no feeling like, there's no feeling like being on a motorcycle and there's no feeling like being in a trophy truck. There's just mm. they're two completely different categories. One, yeah. you're gonna get seriously hurt um when you hit the ground because there's no seat belts and no roll cages. But then you can still get seriously hurt in a trophy truck, but you do have that bit of a boundary around you that you feel like you're bulletproof and um it does it doesn't take as much wear and tear in the body, but you still travel travel at the same speeds and 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 get out of control and things so it's um Mm. but like like i say i i still i love both sports like uh, anything with engines and wheels like sign me up i'll race a lawnmower if somebody wanted to be next week so it's um i'm all for just getting getting dirty and and having fun and and trying to go as fast as i can on anything really but it's uh for sure the love for the bike is still there and um i still want to try and get out to think one more year on the bike to try and make that kind of double thing work and um the Ironman class and just uh yeah like I want to be able like I say I want to be able to hang my helmet up at the end of my time and go I gave it everything I did and it didn't work and I can walk away happy um at the end of it if yeah it if it works then I'll be twice as happy and then I guess yeah you you start thinking more crazy stupid ideas so it's um (laughs) never ends
1: well I definitely think you've changed the game anyway Tobes like You know, there was a lot of great guys, and there will be a lot of great guys before and after and whatnot. But it was interesting. I heard a podcast the other day, and they were talking about the Toby Price effect at Dakar. So it must be pretty um, amazing. And and you know, like you're full of you know excitement to hear that people talk about that way. About you know, there's pretty much with Dakar. And again, don't get me wrong. There's obviously legends of the sport, and there will be legends afterwards. That's a never changing thing in racing, is it? But is it nice to know that you've had that sort of effect in? Such a I mean, it's the sport, isn't it? Like as far as motorbike racing, Dakar is the pinnacle. It's the hardest race in the world.
2: Yeah, that's it for sure. It's um like yeah, I I don't really sit there and take notice of, of it myself too much at all. Like I really don't see myself changing the sport in any direction or any way, really. But it's um in other people's eyes, yes, they do kind of see it as that. And they do say them things, and it's yeah, it does make you quite, yeah, pretty chuffed and pretty proud that you've been able to bring, I guess, a different element and a different kind of style and, and speed to the event and everything. And that's um, definitely, yeah, like I say, you when you hear it, you, you start to think about it a bit. But at the end of the day, it's like I'm always, like, well, I'm tunnel visioned, looking forward and looking ahead and don't really have that time to sit back and, and look back on life, really. So, like, yeah, so I say. Doing, I, I just wrote that um, endurance book um, while I was injured last year at Dakar when I was... Uh, with all my shoulder and stuff and it was actually kind of good to go through all that because yeah i kind of went back through all my life really and started to think geez i have done some pretty cool stuff and pretty cool events and been around um uh awesome events and stuff like that but it's uh yeah like i say when you're in fighting uh, fighting fight fit and healthy and all good you're just tunnel vision looking ahead and the direction you want to go so it's um no it's definitely cool that we're we're a part of the dakar race and to be, i guess it was that i was the first non-european speaking um person to win dakar rally so i think at that time it was probably a, a little bit on the yeah, the rough side for them guys because they had to listen to me speak and us aussies we just speak <laughs> flat out and no one can understand us and yeah um yeah they're trying to work out what i'm actually kind of saying but it's uh for sure a, a cool event and and something cool to be a part of and it's yeah, it only gets bigger and better every year. So it's, um, yeah, 2015 was my first attempt and we finished a third place on the podium there. And, um, that was basically, uh, from the Baja races and stuff that I was doing. Um, that gave me a chance to go to Dakar and, but that one was, was based off the team manager at that point in time, Alex Doringer. He actually paid the bill for me to go and race the event on a stock standard, um, 450 rally bike. And, uh, as the event went along, I started doing quite well and starting to come through the, the ranks a little bit. And then it was um, like, I always kind of kept saying to everyone, it was like, I was playing a computer game, collecting the coins, like in Mario Kart <laughs> or something. And then at the end of the day, I could go to the shop and start buying like suspension and get, and get some like little bit better upgrades of a uh, oil cooler and stuff like that. And, um, and then before I knew it, yeah, I, I finished my third, um, on, on the podium and, uh, Nani Roma at that time he he was in the minis and um came over and was talking to me being a motorcycle guy and he was like like there's no sponsors on the bike it's it's white like who who helped you get here and um I was like oh it was only Alex and that was about it like it was just the last minute call and would I be interested in having a go and I bit the bullet and had jumped on the plane and went for it and um, he was like, oh, that's a pretty cool story. It's rad, but like nobody's really ever just showed up the first time and, and podiumed at Dakar. It's uh, it's a, a lot of things going on that changed the whole aspect of the race and um, all went quite well. So then I'd signed my contract with KTM, uh, Red Bull KTM, and um, went back the second year in 16 to try and um, try and make it look like it. the first one wasn't a fluke and um, actually yeah, ended up winning the race. So it was uh, – yeah, kind of blew everyone away. I was pretty – pretty quick to stand on top of the podium at Dakar and doesn't come mm. too often. It took Mark Coma, I think it was five or six attempts to win his first one. So um, yeah, it was a, a pretty, pretty crazy time and yeah, it took off from there then. Yeah.
0: Brilliant. So, sorry, just to circle back and just ask a question. You were saying that as you're, as you're riding along, it was like you're collecting the coins and, and you're getting upgrades. So as you were say, going faster and faster and getting competitive on stage, like, they were like, Oh man, we need to get behind this guy. And they'd like during the race actually throw like an upgrade on your bike and stuff like that for you during the race. Like, so the the race bike that you started with ended up being a little bit different to the bike that you finished with in that one year.
2: Yeah. In that same year in, in 2015 was, um, like I say it, uh, the, the rally bike comes basically stock trim with 48 mil forks, um, it has a WP rear shock in it, but it's not like the factory-style shock or anything. Um, it had stock clutch plates in it. It had um, basically, yeah, a stock engine that was built to to last for Dakar. But, um, yeah, as like the day four, day five was rolling along and I was doing some pretty good results, um, yeah, like one of the day, actually, unfortunately, Sam Sunderland crashed out of that race that year. Um, so they basically had a spare bike sitting there with all factory parts on it. And, um, yeah, next thing, all of a sudden I was, yeah, the guys come over and said, Oh, we've got a spare set of 52 mil forks. Like we'll, we'll throw them on your bike and that'll help just like look after your arms a little bit and just yeah, be yep. a bit easier on you. So they changed all the front end in the bike for me and put some 52 mil forks in. And the yep. next day I improved and done a little bit better again. So like, Oh, come over. And the next day was like, Oh, here's a, here's a factory shop. You can put that in the bike and, see how it kind of feels and, and change it all up and went better again. So then they were like, Oh, well, let's put a clutch in the bike so he doesn't burn a clutch out and doesn't go to the back of the pack. And, um, so yeah, each day as it went by, it was like a little upgrade that came a little upgrade that came and it yeah, just well, started the bike yeah. getting better and better and better. So it's, yeah. um, yeah, pretty, pretty wild story. Like it's, like I say, not too many people know that side of it. It's just, like I say, it was like I was collecting coins for the day and, and then come into the shop at the end of the day and just, ah, oh, there's the upgrade of forks. I'll take those off yep. the wall. Yep. And here's yep. the upgrade of the, yeah, the oil cooler. I'll take that today and stuff yep. like that. So it was, um, yeah, pretty, pretty rad story. And yeah. And then like 16 was just, yeah, a dream come true really. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm. Was there a point in time in 16 where, I mean, I know you never can jump the gun too early, but was there that point in time where you're riding along and you're going, wow this, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm doing. This is, you know, did you have that moment or was it standing on the podium where you're like, wow, I've just won the Dakar. Like.
2: Yeah. It didn't really kind of sink in until I, I got to the finish line um, standing on that podium, having that trophy in my hand. So like I wasn't counting there, all my he- eggs before they hatched um, like probably about two, three kilometers before the finish line. I think at that, that year I had about a, 38-minute lead um, um, over second place, so I was like, I'm pretty certain I'm strong enough to push a bike for at least a I'd, kilometer. I'd, yeah, in, I'd, I'd push end. it in if I had to. I'll, I'll push the thing if I have to. Like, it's yep. it's all good, but like, I I know for certain I was like, I was nervous as hell because like you you just can't count anything in that race because yeah. one navigation wrong turn and not knowing what the stage was coming up. That was my first thought. It's like, geez, if I make a mistake now, like. I'm leading this thing and I can throw it all away today still. Like it's not a guarantee. And, uh, when I saw that finish line, it was like starting to sink in a little bit that it was, it was kind of going to happen. And, um, and then, yeah, I think I had like a 380 kilometer liaison right at the end of it, That I had to basically just reflect on the last two weeks of racing over there. Mm. And, um, it just felt like a dream. It was like, there's no way in the world this has happened. Like someone's going to like, yeah, slap me when I'm at the finish line, I'm going to wake up and, yeah. Now I'm gonna be getting ready to get on the plane and go to go to the race. And um yeah, it was yeah, like I say, a dream come true. And to have that trophy in your hands that first time was, yeah, like I still get shivers now to it, really.
1: Absolutely. As Australians, we get shivers, mate. Like that's a that's a game changer there. It was it was definitely a proud moment and uh, got a lot of people on board with off-road racing, which was amazing. A lot of guys that you know, like had no interest in thinking, and had no interest in, in off-road racing as a whole that story of the Aussie that went and rode, you know, one Dakar that, that's something that I think really brought eyes to our sport. So I, I think it's brilliant, mate. It, it was definitely, um, yeah, yeah. It was a proud moment for all Australians, especially dirt guys. Yeah. So no, it good it, fun.
2: It, it definitely, um, I, I hope that it's definitely brought more attention to the motorsport race, but what we do, it's, it, it is pretty badass, And like, um, it's nice to see more people take notice of this because it's, it's not a cheap sport and people yep. do this for the love and passion of it. You don't trophy truck racing. You don't make money out of it. It's um mm. oh, yeah. Yep. This,
1: this put, put, it, put it put it in a pile money. and burn it. That's what you yeah, do.
2: percent. My accountant <laughs> yelled at me every day. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you yeah. This is not the smartest investment you're doing yeah, right now. Not very good. <laughs> I love going fast. And that's like I say, yeah. you, you, you basically, well, I've kind of worked out roughly in the next, yeah, two weeks. I'm going to spend about eight grand in diesel, and you're going to go out there and win ten grand prize money for for Fink. Yeah. But you don't do it for the money. You just do it because you love doing it, and you want to be yeah passionate for the sport really. And it's good that yeah, like the Dakar race has actually brought some more eyes on the motorsport racing and stuff like that. And like it hasn't all been up to me either. There's been a lot of people that have gone over and done exceptionally well um, in their chosen sport for motorcycle racing like jack miller and stuff in moto gp yep. and everything so yep. motorsport racing is definitely taking off um, extremely big and um it, it's cool to see and we have produced world renowned off-road um, motocross races and off-road races that can go over and compete against the best in the world so it's um absolutely it's cool to see and that's what you want more people to see the sport so then more support comes for all the whole group the whole whole field really so it's like you want to see everybody here with a major sponsor on the side of their car or on the side of their motorcycle that helps the sport take off and get to the levels that we want to see it at and that's um that's yeah for my my eyes my goal is i want more people to enjoy off-road racing and more motorcycle racing and things like that and Mm -hmm. you want to just see the sport take off
0: i think you hit the nail on the head when you said there's a lot of passion in the sport in off-road racing and particularly in Australia, like you said, we're only a, we're only a small country and, um, you, you listed Jack Miller before, and then there's the Lawrence brothers overdoing the, yeah. the supercross. Yeah. I, I talk about them all the time because I'm massive fanboys of those two lads. Like, it's so great that you, you watch the supercross on, on TV and you know, everyone's doing their interviews and then like Hunter or jet comes on and that abrasive Australian accent, <laughs> is, you know, exa- you you know exactly, exactly where they're from, which is Oi. so cool. Oh mate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and boy, and mate. such yeah, good yeah. down, such good yeah. down to earth people as well. Like, um, there was a time you and Jack Miller came to to Central Queensland where we're from, and you and you hung out with Comiskey for a bit, and like it was just like, you sort of wouldn't even know that that Jack, you know, that you're who you are, or Jack Miller is who he is. Like he was just cruising around having a good time. Like you know, hey, you want to build a two hundred foot super Buddha. <laughs> you know, with this machinery and, and he was all on board for it, you know? So oh, yeah. I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about off-road racing and the, the passion and the drive oh. that is in it for the people, the people that do it. And it's great that there are more eyes and, and the support and the the eyes and the people that, you, you know, someone like yourself getting involved has brought to it. it it's only great things for the sport. Yeah, that's
2: Absolutely. it. hundred percent. We're basically just Aussie bogans made the like to go yep. fast really. And that's, yep. that's, that's about it. So, um, but yeah, it's it's just cool to see that actually starting to hit more mainstream media and getting TV time and stuff because yeah, it's that's only going to bring bigger and better things for the sport and 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 everybody involved and it's racing in it and that's uh, that's the ultimate goal. It's just uh, to try and like help everybody come and enjoy this sport more and more and that's mm-hmm. um, the biggest part of it. So it's uh, it's not a cheap sport. There's there's options to somehow, yeah, you can cut back in certain areas to make it a bit cheaper, but then, yeah, you don't want it to explode and take off that it scares people away and they don't want to come yep. and try the sport for their first time. Mm-hmm. And that's yep. where you see like the Can-Am category and stuff like that that's taking off. It's like, it's massive big group now. And it, it was hard to see when those things first come out everyone was like, ah, oh, them golf buggies and blah, blah, blah. Yep. And like, I'm sure everybody said it. I'm sure I've said it at some point too. We definitely said it. Them, but, yep. yep. But they are like a, a cheap alternative to get into and go racing and go and spend family time away weekends and have fun, and go do something and, and go and race. But like I say, they, you see a lot of YouTube videos of them things getting messed up pretty damn hard. And you can see why, <laughs> because they are a fast golf buggy. That's that um, size. That's yep. about the basically the same wheelbase, but you can go get yeah, 10 times quicker in the damn thing. So it's, um, like, yep. it's cool to see.
1: It definitely is. Hey mate, it's it's obviously I want to lead into think now with the biggest challenges that you've got because you were talking about going fast. We're going fast in a couple of weeks now. Like if we're as this will when this comes out, it'll actually be we'll be at the street party, mate. That's what'll be going on. So uh, we'll be it'll be pretty exciting. Yeah, we will be partying <laughs> in Alice Springs. It'll be a good time. But so far, and I know that we've got a couple of weeks to go now, but what is the biggest challenge that you've heard that what's the hurdle uh, coming into think 2022. And I know this is a crazy question, but let's go with it anyway. What are the goal sets for, for think? I mean, obviously it's to win, but what else is going on in the background to get you to a position, you know, where you're a happy think man. Yeah,
2: look, it's um like I say, it doesn't matter how much money you throw at this. um, It can all go pear shape. And like I say, it's uh. You may not even make it to the race with the transporter, or something could blow a wheel off. You just you don't know. But the goal is for sure to go back out. We won last year. It'd be nice to try and kind of cement that in this year uh, and win again. Um, But yeah, like with all the COVID world and everything that was going on, like last year was a bit of a bit of a rough run because we didn't have the likes of Shannon Ranch and um, a lot of the Victorian boys and everything there. So shannon's got a new car i think bo robertson hoping it sounds like he's going to have his new truck and um yeah there's a lot of new cars like smoothie just won at um uh, at puncary on the weekend so the goal is for sure to win but it's um we've got a lot of competition and it's good that everybody's going to be at this one this is this is the one that's kind of going to be that cements it all in i really and um I'm just hoping it doesn't go pear shaped So it's uh yep. you just never know with the racing side of things. But it's um yeah, like it's it's gonna be a challenge, that's for sure. I think dust is always a big issue. I wish at the moment the rain that we're getting here in Brisbane yeah. would um piss right off and go west and uh actually rain on the track. So it gave everybody the fair chance and opportunity to, to go full gas and wide open and may the best man win really and um yep. see where it ends up. So it's uh no, it's exciting. We're there's a lot of challenges with it it's just and the biggest challenge is just trying to keep that truck together and um not anything exploding the thing really
1: absolutely mate well i reckon that is a great goal set um, listen, if you're happy, I think we'll wrap it up there. Cause we've had a great yeah, chat. Yep. We're, we're going to have to get you back on mate. Hopefully after think, hopefully after a great position, that'd be a great time, but you've given us so much information. I, I, I know I speak for both of us. He'll yeah. speak as well, but man, even in this, and I thought I knew a lot of the stories I've heard a few of the stories, but man, some of the things you've told us again, this is, uh, this is what this dirt bags is all about. Capturing those behind the scene fire stories that, you know, most of us don't get to hear. I've truly enjoyed having you on. It's been a great time, Tobes, and, and best of luck at Fink22, mate. We'll listen, as much as it pains me to say this, I'll cheer for you, even though you're in one of these, these trophy truck things. I don't when are you gonna buy a good car? Hey, mate, come on. Oh, mate, no,
2: good. mate, mate, hey?
1: hey, No good. Oh, hey, can we sc- <laughs> I'm right. hoping we're clipping this now. <laughs> no, no. 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 It'll be a good year nah, mate. Look, we love them.
2: I I need the real estate space mate. That's why I went Trophy ah, Truck yes. is a bit more real that, estate to try and yeah, sell for bit. And they do look actually. So
1: I know I know we're really pulling it here now at the end but the other thing that I saw a photo of your car the other day mate. It is looking spectacular. Like Mitsubishi backed and with that Mitsubishi front. You uh, like how do I say this? The rent a year, it was a little bit industrial. The Mitzi look, I'm just saying, <laughs> yeah. but but, yeah, she but was this year,
2: a Mitsubishi found out in the street and just pulled the grill off it and just uh cable <laughs> tied the thing Come... on
1: there and uh made it kind of found one run in run the, the Todd, yeah, yeah. Down,
2: found it down in the Todd, mate. It was only burnt out one, but it didn't burn the front of the grill out, so it was uh... perfect, perfect. But yeah, no, she's looking good. They get some when I yeah. first built that Mitsubishi body, it was. It was a little bit of a testing thing. I was like looking at it when it was there, plain white and um, no like graphics on it at all. And I was like, I think I'm gonna cop a lot of heat for this. It, it doesn't really look like a trophy truck at the moment, but once you put all the the ba- uh, all the like fine detail lines and everything, yep. and all the lights yep. and everything like that, and like a little bit of a fake grill and everything, um, yeah, the actual guys in the states were really pumped on it. And every year I get probably yeah. Hundred odd messages from the guys in Baja. I was like, when are we going to see this thing in in, in Baja? Because yep. it is, yep. it, it's the only one in the world. Like, it's pretty yep. crazy. People want to see it, but it's, um, yeah, she's a Mitsubishi body and, um, everyone's took it on board pretty well. But yeah, it's, it's a hard challenge to keep, uh, in front of them buggies you boys have got. And, yeah. um, yep. yeah, well, yeah, luckily you can't frighten a Triton. You can't ride the Triton, mate. So, uh, yeah, you can certainly bash the hell out of one, but yeah, you
1: can't yeah, yeah. ride them, so. <laughs> Perfect. Love it, mate. Well, we'll look forward to catching you. Again, hopefully we're uh, we're out there having a, a Red Bull with you at the uh, at the street party at Fink. We'll be out in Alice Springs as this drops. But, mate, it's been an absolute pleasure, and we can't wait to see you out there and, and upper. Well, just okay. and one
0: opportunity, mate. Do you, is there anyone you'd like to thank, sponsors or anything like that, that you, you'd like to give a shout-out that, that are going to help you? and uh, everything like that. So we just thought we'd give you an opportunity to, to thank your sponsors and everything like that.
2: Yeah, mate, uh, that's much appreciated. It's um, like I say, it's, it's like a one, looks like a one man show, but it's uh, a lot of big team effort from everyone. And Red Bull definitely helps a lot. And uh, Mitsubishi, Alvin's gearboxes and um, Mo tech BF Goodridge tires, Method race wheels, um, Ray Ray from Dugan's race engines, um, Sparko, everyone like that that jumps on board to kind of yeah make this all kind of happen we had brian fly over from tisco tisco is a massive big part of the program as well so um yeah there's so many moving parts to the whole thing and um james lynn's going to tag into the computer tomorrow with the truck and um, go through the finer details of everything so it's um like I say, yeah, much appreciated for that because it's uh it's a big show, every and big effort that everybody puts in. It's not just from me as yep. well. So it's um yep,
0: absolutely now nah,
2: f- full gas and uh we'll be ready to send her out at Fink and we'll see you boys out there. Appreciate it.
0: Legend, mate. Well awesome. we, we we generally really genuinely really do appreciate you giving uh, your time up tonight, this this close to Fink and, and for the prep. So thanks, mate. We'll we'll catch up with you out in Alice Springs.
2: Mate, sounds like a plan. Cheers, boys. <laughs>
0: The will be